0: Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books.
1: During my cross-examination the second time, Things got pretty heated, as they're supposed to in cross examination. And Judge Sirica intervened, saying, Now, Mr. Mardian, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? And that really interfered with my trial strategy, which was to show Mardian as a hothead. And we knew if he yelled at me, it would be much more impactful on the jury than if he yelled at Jim or Rick. Oh, man fighting with a man, who cares? We also didn't know if he would actually yell at me because there was a thing called male chauvinism at the time, that he might control himself because I was a lady and that he might not yell. It was easy to get him to yell and to show who he really was. And that definitely hurt him in front of the jury. No question.
0: This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, I speak with Jill Weinbanks. Jill is an author, a lawyer, a legal analyst, a podcaster, a visible voice, an octogenarian, yes, I want to use that word, and so much more. We focus on Jill's book. The title of the book is The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. Now, in this case, the criminal president is Richard Nixon. Jill is a co-host of two podcasts, hashtag Sisters in Law with three other MSNBC contributors and one called iGen, standing for Intergenerational Politics, with Victor Xi. Jill began her acclaimed career as the first woman to serve as an organized crime prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Less than five years later, she was selected as one of three Assistant Watergate Special Prosecutors for the obstruction of justice trial against President Nixon's top aides. Known as the mini-skirted lawyer, she cross-examined President Nixon's secretary about the 18 and a half minute gap in a key White House recording. And you're going to hear all sorts of details on this. So let's get to the conversation. Jill, thank you so much for joining me on The Visible Voices. It's a pleasure
1: to be here. I look forward to our conversation.
0: I've been having a few conversations with authors, and there are a lot of things I'd like to discuss with you today, your personal life, your professional life, and your book. Listeners who may not have been alive and are not particularly well-schooled in Watergate, and are not yet aware of your book, the title being The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. Give us the 411, the information on this
1: book. The book was a long time in the making. I was asked to write a book in 1976. I'm sure that's before most of your viewers were even alive. And I just said, I'm too busy. I have a full-time career. I don't have time to do this. I also felt I didn't have anything to add to the conversation. I felt like the press had done a very good job of covering it so that there was nothing to add. It wasn't until I retired in 2008 that friends who had been encouraging me to write a book for a long time said, what's your excuse now? You're retired. You have time. Well, it turned out I obviously failed at retirement and I am back again working full time, but there was a few years where I felt I could at least start. And so I started in 2008 and then I got busy and I dropped it and I didn't go back to it until 2017 when the equivalent of the Saturday night massacre happened. This is when James Comey got fired. Donald Trump had taken office and the parallels between Watergate and what was happening under Trump became so obvious. That's how I started a new television career, but it also made me think that there was relevance to what I had witnessed. And then as I was doing an outline, and I'm a big outliner, of stories I wanted to tell, and I wanted to tell this in a very relatable way as if I was talking to friends. And so I reveal... A lot of things about Watergate, but also about who I was and what the era was like. Not only was it an era where there was bipartisanship, where there were facts that mattered, there were only three networks, they all had the same facts, but it was a really sexist era. When I started practicing law, only 4% of lawyers were women. Of that 4%, almost zero were trial lawyers. So I was really an oddity. And I don't think I realized until I was writing the book how much sexism played a role in my life, in my psyche, in my career, and how much I wanted to share those stories because they are still happening. It is absurd that now that law school classes are 50% female, sometimes more, and I think the same is true for you in medicine, even with that number, women aren't at the peak of their professions. They aren't the leaders of corporations or businesses or law firms. There are some, but it's not representative of the percentage that women compose. So you were born
0: in 1943 in Chicago. You are 80 years old. Right.
1: Do you feel 80? No. (laughs) How old do you feel? You know, I don't know. My best friends are all at least 10 years younger than me and I certainly keep up with them, but I think they're extraordinary, and they don't feel like 70. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't feel retired because I'm not, and because my mind has to be fully engaged. I don't just read news articles to comment on. I read the underlying documents. I look for the facts so that I can feel confident that I'm telling the truth when I say something. So you graduated
0: college at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Than Columbia Law School. And pretty early in your career, you were doing prosecution cases with criminals and you found yourself as a prosecutor for Watergate. So walk the audience a little bit through what led up to Watergate and then we'll get to the book and in what you covered during the book.
1: I graduated law school and I was in a very bad marriage and my husband came home while I was studying for the bar exam and said, I've decided I want to work for the FCC. We're moving to Washington. And it never even occurred to me that I would say, I have a job on Wall Street and I'm not moving. (laughs) They don't have an office in DC. Instead, I called the firm and said, I'm not starting. I moved to Washington without a job. And in law, maybe unlike other careers, you are hired at the early part of your senior year. You go through interviews, and by the time you're in your final semester, you have a job. So I was moving to a new city where I had no connections, where we didn't have computers, where I was going to have to type individual letters to different places saying I was interested in a job. In law school, firms came to Columbia, and you just signed up and interviewed. It was really easy. This was going to be hard. And one of the things I learned was the value of networking which is something that I don't think people really focus on enough or realize how important it is. But through a connection, I met someone who was in the organized crime section at the Department of Justice. And he said, oh, let me have your resume. I'll give it to my boss. So I mailed him a copy of my resume. He gave it to his boss and I got hired. Then I got to realize that the men I started with were trying cases. We all start with appeals, which is a very good way to learn the mistakes of trial lawyers that when you start trying cases, you will avoid. And so I went to my boss and I said, how come? And he said, because you're a girl. And he actually said that word and you'd be much more vulnerable. This is organized crime. In appeals, you're just with lawyers. In a courtroom, a trial court, you'd be with made members of the mob and you'd be so much more vulnerable. And I simply said, well, what didn't you notice about me when you hired me to be a trial lawyer? And that's how I got my first trial was by speaking up and insisting on it. And also because my direct supervisor was a real mentor to me and he had a trial coming up and he said, you can second chair this trial. So that's how I got my first trial. And once I survived that, they went, oh, well, I guess that worked. And so I got my second. I also second chaired. And then I was on my own. I was trying cases on my own. So I learned the lesson of networking, of speaking up. And of course, I had to make this up. I didn't have someone to go to and say, what do I do? There was no other woman around. I was the only woman in the criminal organized crime section.
0: If I can say, Joe, that the podcast being the visible voices, I asked guests, when did you realize you had a voice? And when did you start using your voice? Was this the time that you realized you had a voice?
1: Yes. And I was not one of those students who raised my hand. Oh, pick on me, pick on me. I was not that person. I think I felt inadequate, particularly, I mean, I got to Columbia from a Big Ten school. Almost everyone else in my class was from the Ivy League or from the Seven Sisters, a world I didn't know. I mean, I grew up in the Big Ten in Illinois. And So I felt like they were all smarter and better educated than I was. And there is a certain sense of satisfaction now when they call on me to speak at events because I've become a public person. And Watergate happened because that same person I mentioned, my mentor, whose name is Charles Ruff, who also became the White House counsel to Bill Clinton, who was the U.S. attorney in D.C., He was an amazingly brilliant person, and he didn't care that I was a woman. He saw what I could do, and he accepted me. And there were two other men in the division who, to this day, are friends that I still email with, Phil Michael and Jerry McDowell. And Jerry was actually the one who gave my resume to the boss that led to my being hired. And they were people I had lunch with and conversations with. And who I really felt accepted me for what I was. And that helped me a lot to accept myself for what I was.
0: I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Micro Skills Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. You talked about your first marriage to Ian Vollner. And in the book, you talk about your ongoing affair that you had with Kurt Mullenberg and then ultimately your second marriage to Michael Banks. Why do you think you first chose Ian and stayed with him for so long? And I have a sense, again, generationally, culturally, all these things, but what do you see now as the long-term effects of having stayed in that relationship that maybe would not have affected you so long-term?
1: Well, I mean, I think I've taken responsibility and have moved on. And I think there was one good thing, which was since I wasn't happy at home, I spent more time at the office and I worked harder. And I think that actually helped me be a better lawyer and to get better assignments because I was always willing to say, Oh, you need someone to do that? I'll do it. So there was something good came out of it. My decision to talk about all this. And there's so many things in your question that I want to go back to, but my decision, believe me, many friends said, Are you crazy? Why are you doing this? You should not. Don't, 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 don't. But I felt, first of all, in terms of telling a story, I had to be authentic. I had to be truthful, or it would not be the book that I really wanted to write. I also felt that there are many, many, many women who Stay in bad marriages because, like me, during my generation, number one, divorce was not common. I mean, this was, I got married in 1965. And I guess I had just turned 22. So I was very young. I had finished a year of law school. I was ahead of myself in terms of being in school. And I felt that maybe if I told the truth, other women would realize one, it isn't their fault that the marriage is bad. Two, it isn't in their power to fix the marriage or their partner, and that unhappiness is not required, and that divorce is not a crime or a shame or embarrassing, that it is something that happens. And so I felt it was important to talk about that. And I also felt, in terms of the story, the public person that was me, the confident woman striding into court was a fraud in a way, or that there were at least two of me. There was a me at home that took the abuse, never physical abuse, which reminds me, you said he was verbally abusive and psychologically abusive. In writing the book, my editor said, do not edit yourself. You write the truth. Let the lawyers decide what you can say if it would be something that you could get sued over. And one of the only things that the lawyers asked me to change was the word verbally abusive. I did not use verbal abuse in the book, although I have a million examples of verbal abuse. For some reason, they said psychological abuse, emotional abuse, use those words. Now, I don't know why verbal abuse, when I could document specific things, oftentimes in front of friends who would vouch for the truth of it, But for some reason, I couldn't say verbally abusive, even though I had examples of verbal abuse. So it was interesting that you picked up on verbal abuse. And so I stayed because I felt I had to. It was just part of what, when you got married, you stuck with it. And because I came to believe, I finally went to a psychiatrist, which was the best thing I ever did for myself. And in our first session, he said, this is not your fault. This is not your problem. Your husband is sick. And he needs therapy. And I said, well, he says he's in therapy. And my doctor said, if he was in therapy, he would be going five days a week for analysis. He's not in therapy. I don't believe that. And I said, well, you're just hearing my side of the story. And I'm a trial lawyer, so I'm persuasive. He said, you could be Clarence Darrow, but I'm a very good doctor. And I'm telling you, this is not your fault. It took me three years to actually accept that, to confront it. To say to my husband, I can't find any evidence that you're actually seeing a doctor, are you? And he said, I'm not. And I said, then we're done. As long as you were trying to get better, I was willing to stay. You're not doing it and you're lying to me. So we're done. That's it. And that was the end of the marriage. He moved out of our bedroom that day. It took him months to find an apartment to move into, but we lived separate lives. And because I was general consul of the army, And because being a woman, the first and only woman there, it was hard enough as a woman. And wives play a very important role in generals, you know, careers. And so I pretended I was still married. And so for all the social events, I'd say, oh, my husband's sick. Oh, my husband's working. Oh, my husband's out of town. Until I felt I was established enough and accepted to say, I'm separated and I'd like to bring someone else with me to these events and not go alone but it took a while before I felt that people accepted me as the lawyer for the army.
0: Throughout the book, you describe what it was like and the work, and particularly yeah. one of the things that you are known for, which is Rosemary, you're questioning your interaction with Rosemary Woods and what was called the Rosemary Stretch. For mm-hmm. listeners that aren't familiar, can you sort of summarize what that was and how that felt because even that in the courtroom it was almost like everybody was like girl fight watching these two women go at it and there was almost this over and over again because i've seen this in medicine this liking watching women go at it verbally
1: <laughs> great question and there is a book being worked on right now about rosemary woods and it's a british author and our conversations have been fascinating and have brought back so many memories quite remarkable. Let me start with how she became my witness, because there has been speculation. And Leon Jaworski, who was the second special prosecutor after the Saturday Night Massacre when uh, Archie Cox got fired, he became the second. And in his book, he says, he was the one who decided that I should cross-examine her because we were both women. He wasn't even there at the time. He came in later than this happened. So that's just wrong, incorrect. What happened was there were three of us who were the chief trial lawyers. Jim Neal, who was 10, 15 years older than Richard Benvenista and myself. And Richard's only a year older than I am. But he has an extra year of trial experience over that. So it's two years because he wasn't held back in the same way that I was. Jim. Had just started a law firm in Nashville, Tennessee, and had made a deal with Archie that he would stay until John Dean pled guilty, which happened the day before the Saturday night massacre on Friday. And so he flew back to Tennessee. And three days after the Saturday night massacre, Richard Nixon said, OK, I'm going to stop fighting you. I will give you the tapes. And then they said, Oh, well, there's two missing. And Judge Sirica said, you're not taking this to the grand jury in secret. We're going to have a public hearing. The White House is going to call witnesses and you'll cross-examine them. And Rick, as I called him then, Richard, as he is now known, although it's, I will slip, I can't. it's hard for me to say Richard instead of I Rick. I
0: love your friendship, by the way, as portrayed. <laughs> it just seems great.
1: It's still, I mean, I, we just had our 50th anniversary of the Saturday Night Massacre and and we have stayed really, really close friends. And he was the last person that I was with before I moved to Chicago to marry Michael. We spent the day together and it was, it was very special. Anyway, you know, he was sort of in charge. He, he was the senior person. And I felt he was taking too many witnesses. I had learned my lesson at the Department of Justice. So I said to him, out into the hallway, I want to talk to you. You're taking too many witnesses. I'm going to take the next witness the White House calls, and then we're going to share equally. And so he said, okay, okay. The next witness called was Rosemary Woods. That's how she became my witness. That was in the first tapes hearing about the two missing tapes. It was around Halloween. And then the day before Thanksgiving, the White House called us back to court and said, Oh, there's a third tape with a problem. It has an 18 and a half minute gap. There is no innocent explanation. And only Rosemary Woods can explain it. Since she was my witness the first time, it never occurred to me that she wouldn't be my witness the second time, now that she was a really significant witness, now that she was accused of a crime. And where I was going to have to violate the first rule of trial law, which is to never ask a question you don't know the answer to, I was going to have to say, tell me what happened with no idea what she was going to say. and. In that setting, it really was, for any of your listeners who are old enough to know the original Perry Mason, who had a trial every night and every night had someone on the stand say, it was me. Your client is innocent. I'm the one who did it. It, it never failed. Well, I had that moment in cross-examining her the second time. And when I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I was transcribing the tapes and the telephone rang and I must have kept my foot on the pedal that kept the tape machine. This is a reel-to-reel tape moving. And I instead of punching stop, pressed record. And that must have created the hum. I didn't realize it till I hung up the phone, but then I saw that the tape was moving. So I rewound it. I listened to it, the last thing I had heard, which was about Ely Nevada. She had a clear memory of that. And then there was this buzz. And I said, "How long was?" She said, "Well, I didn't really know. As soon as the president got off, she had a phone that showed whether he was on or off the phone. As soon as I saw the light go off, I ran in to tell him that I had made this horrible mistake." I said, "You went in before you knew how bad the mistake was." She said, "Yes, I did." And he said, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's not a subpoenaed tape, which is, of course, absurd. Why was she transcribing it if it wasn't a subpoenaed tape? And how would he know?" Anyway, that that was a weird, strange thing. So I said, well, it didn't make sense to me that that could have happened. And so I said, maybe we could have you demonstrate in the courtroom. And the White House brought the tape machine over with the pedal and the headphones. And she put on the headphones. And I said, show me what you did. And she had to lift the headphones because she couldn't hear me with them on. So I said, okay, just put them next to the machine. We'll pretend they're on. What happened? She said, well, the phone rang and I, and she very delicately pointed to the headphones next to the tape machine, which is on the ledge of a witness box, which is small and delicate, barely moved. And her foot came off the pedal and I could see, and the press could see that the tape machine stopped. So that was my Perry Mason moment. I said, and the machine isn't moving. You're not erasing anything. She said, well, it was different in my office. I did it there. I said, well, Your Honor, maybe we should adjourn to her office, never expecting that that would be granted. And he said, I think that's a good idea. And the White House didn't object. And her lawyers, by that point, she had to have her own lawyer, didn't object. So I was adjacent to the Oval Office in the White House. And we weren't allowed to bring a photographer, we had the White House photographer taking pictures. And the pictures, there is one in my book where you can see where she's showing that she physically could reach the phone. She couldn't have done it for 18 and a half minutes. She couldn't have done it for four minutes. It would have been the most natural thing to take her foot off the pedal and to roll her chair to the telephone. And So, I mean, she was clearly not telling the truth. There was no way that it happened. The picture of her stretch, the Rosemary stretch, became fodder for cartoons. It was the front page of every newspaper the next day. It was the front page of every news magazine that week. And as a result of that, her friends, and she probably, thought I was mean and evil, that I had embarrassed her. I didn't embarrass her. I only asked questions. Her answers embarrassed her. It did hurt me when I was writing the book because, and that's why I'm so excited that this British author is working on a book now about her, because everybody I called who knew her at the time refused to talk to me. They would hang up on me. They would slam the door in my face. Bob Woodward told me to stop calling. It's too easy to hang up on. You have to knock on their door. It's harder for them to slam the door. And I got the door slammed in my face. So I wanted to portray her, As her friends knew her, I wanted that kind of personal thing because she really was significant in my life and my career. And I clearly was in her career and her life, even though we only were together for a few hours over the course of a few days. And so I was unable to do that for the most part. It was very clear that this blew up in history
0: and the media, et cetera, there is this misogynistic sexist component. She was the fall person for the president and her loyalty and what she was willing to do to protect, it just sort of hits you.
1: It's not clear to me whether she actually believed this or whether she just was falling on her sword for the man she had served so loyally. And there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of analysis that I could go into in that. But one of the things you said earlier, during my cross-examination the second time, things got pretty heated, as they're supposed to in cross-examination. And Judge Sirica intervened saying, now, ladies, we have enough problem in the courtroom without two women fighting. Oh, my God. Talk about your blood draining from your face. And you just stand there. And it's the judge. You cannot talk back. But man, did that hurt. And he did it again during the trial when I was cross-examining one of the defendants. And he said, now, Mr. Mardian, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? And man, that really interfered with my trial strategy, which was to show Mardian as a hothead. And we knew if he yelled at me, it would be much more impactful on the jury than if he yelled at Jim or Rick oh, man fighting with a man, who cares? We also didn't know if he would actually yell at me because there was a thing called male chauvinism at the time, that he might control himself because I was a lady and that he might not yell. It was easy to get him to yell and to show who he really was. And that definitely hurt him in front of the jury, no question. Do you speak on your podcasts
0: about comparisons of Watergate, Nixon to now Trump? And I'd like to read a paragraph from your epilogue to really bring the listeners up to this comparison and have you riff on, is Trump truly worse than Nixon, and why exactly are things different right now? As I write this, more than four decades after Watergate, I see history repeating itself with the presidency of Donald Trump. Like Nixon, Trump is corrupt, amoral, vindictive, paranoid, ruthless, and narcissistic. The election of both men involved scandalous cover-ups. Twitter called the criminal investigation of President Trump by special counsel Robert Mueller, hashtag Watergate with Russian dressing. The hashtag couldn't be more apt. Now as then, there's a sense that our country is spinning toward chaos, that our democratic institutions might not survive. Today, the peril is worse than in the 1970s because Trump is more dangerous than Nixon. In the end, Nixon did comply with the Supreme Court the order to turn over the tapes, while there was widespread fears that Trump will not respect the rule of law. Trump's stonewalling surpasses Nixon's, and he challenges Congress's oversight role, so essential to our constitutional framework of checks and balances, in unparalleled ways. Moreover, Trump has set the stage for continued foreign meddling by his refusal to acknowledge or penalize. Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election. And on the factual record available as of this writing, he appears to have committed impeachable offenses in his request that President Zelensky of Ukraine do us a favor, though, by announcing an investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden and his son before U.S. military aid would be released, and so on.
1: Wow. It's amazing to hear those words because they are still true. And I have to say, there is no mention of Donald Trump until the epilogue, and that I was writing the epilogue while the rest of the book was at the printer. Things were moving fast, information was coming out, and I wanted to keep it as accurate as I could so that it would be true for as long as possible. I didn't want it outdated by the time the book actually was released. And hearing that, I believe that there is not one word I would change there. That it is still exactly true, except worse. I mean, I, there's more I could add in terms of what he did as president and what he would do if he is elected to a second term. And the second term would be so much worse because he now knows to hire only the most loyal people who will do his bidding. In the first term, we were saved by courts. And now, of course, the courts have been remade in his image. Although, fortunately, President Biden is getting a lot of appointments, And but that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of Trump appointees. And it doesn't mean that all Trump appointees are immoral and unethical and will do his bidding. Please don't take that away from this. There are many good people who are Trump appointees, but there are some who are demonstrating that they don't care as much about the rule of law as they do about him. And I think Your audience probably knows who I'm talking about for some of those. But he would not have Bill Barr. He would not have anybody who stood up to him. He will have only people who will be doing whatever he asks. And that means there will be no guardrails and that he won't be stopped. And that is terrifying to me. He has announced a totally Hitlerian agenda. He's now using the word vermin, which is straight from Mussolini and Hitler. He has said he would use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies. And Richard Nixon had an enemies list. He used mostly the IRS to have them have audits and to go after them that way. He also used justice to do or not do certain things that impacted donors of his, but not in the way that Donald Trump is saying he would use justice. I will go after my opponents. I will go after anyone who's running against me. That is not our system of justice. And we should be paying attention to whether we're in 1939 in Germany and are about to lose everything that we hold dear. And all I can say is getting out the vote is going to be really important. But I do think Richard Nixon, number one, actually believed in the rule of law. And when confronted with, no, we won't support you, he resigned. Can you imagine Donald Trump ever doing that? No, you cannot. It wouldn't happen. And you have Santos. Why is he still in Congress? There's no shame. It's just a different era. And it is worse. I never felt that democracy was about to end or that there was no going back from where we were. We're getting close to a point where I fear we can't go back. And so that's why I speak up. That's why I will campaign and do anything I can to make sure that he never gets near the White House again and that all of his supporters in Congress don't continue to have powerful positions because right now the enablers are as dangerous to this country as would be a second presidency. The Risa wrap up. Special thanks to Jill Weinbanks for joining me in conversation. I
0: really appreciate the time you gave, and I loved the conversation. Audience, as you know, people like this are very, very inspiring to me. I have a lot of respect for Jill's leadership, her advocacy, her sharing of her authentic, true, sometimes painful journey. And as a final note, I'm going to read you three lines from her book that really moved me and I thought really capture Jill's spirit and the way she thinks. Number one. News reporters are the shining protectors of democracy. Number two, cross-examination is like a craft, like cooking or writing or playing the flute. And finally, good trial lawyers operate on instinct, bolstered by training and preparation. That's all I have for you legally this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano Deporto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.